Hello, friends. We are working on some big projects behind the scenes and realized the need to take a little break from recording new book clubs. Also, we have gained quite a few new followers in the last 12 months. And so we thought that now might be the right moment to revisit three of our most popular book clubs, the books from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. A few years ago, I, Sarah, wrote a short article about the trilogy, and it has had almost 6,000 views since then and continues to get quite a bit of attention every single month. Last March, we released Out of the Silent Planet, and it quickly became one of our most popular book clubs. In April, we released Paralandra, and in May, we released That Hideous Strength. While we work on some other things for you in the background, we will be re-releasing each of those podcasts in the same format this year. Thank you for listening in. We are so glad that you are here. Hello! You are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have with us a library lady today, Christy Sansfield, and our biblioguides ladies, Lara Yeverino, Tanya Arnold, and Sarah Kim are here. Hey, ladies! I am so excited to discuss this book because I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought I would start with that. Um, So friends at home and friends gathered here, this is one of those wonderful situations where Diane and I have had completely opposite views of this book, our entire friendship, and yet we are still friends. So (laughs) this should be a good book club today. Friends, we are today discussing the second book in the C.S. Lewis, now some people call it Space Trilogy, some people call it Ransom Trilogy, but it is the trilogy of books that he wrote kind of on a dare or with an agreement with Tolkien because they felt that somebody needed to baptize science fiction. And so somebody needed to go into the spaces of H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw and uh, writers of their ilk and push back with the idea that the heavens are in fact sacred and that in fact magic is in uh, magic is maybe real in the form of miracles, the deeper magic, shall we say. So today we're discussing the second book in that trilogy. And I, I tell you right here, right now, if you haven't read the first book and you care about spoilers, stop right now, <laughs> right here, because we can't even introduce this book without spoiling the first book. So if you care about spoilers, this is your warning. I'm just talking so you can dry your hands from washing your dishes, grab your phone and press pause and bookmark this one and come back to it. If you have read the first book and or you've listened to the first podcast or you don't care and you haven't read this one, you can join us for a little bit and we'll let you know when we get into spoiler territory that's specific to this particular book. So we're going to assume that from this moment on, you are familiar with the Space or Ransom trilogy, that you have already done what you want to do with regard to the first book, and that you are ready now to grapple with the second one. I just want to interject something 
because I read the preface about a hundred times throughout the reading of this book. And um, I kept going back to it to remind myself of what Lewis said mm-hmm. in the preface. So one thing he said, and I think this is interesting based on what you just said, is that this story can be read by itself, but it is also a sequel to Out of the Silent Planet, in which some account was given of Ransom's adventure in Mars. So right off the bat, he's saying, you don't necessarily have to have read the first book or have any history or any information. And I kept thinking throughout it because I had read the first one. What would have happened had I not? Uh, what, yeah. How would I have approached this? What would I have been thinking about if I didn't have the understanding of that story? Because they're so, oh, so wildly different. different. So that was my first thought. And I think that's something interesting for readers to consider is Lewis's approach to how he felt like you could approach the stories. And then um, just going over the preface again, which is really short, he says, in which some account was given of Ransom's adventures in Mars, or as its inhabitants call it, Malachandra. All the human characters in this book are purely fictitious, and none of them is allegorical. Right. Not true. <laughs> and, I, and I just kept going. So I would read stuff, and then I'd go back and be like, nothing is allegorical. Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay. And then I'd be reading, and then I'd be like, okay, sure, Mr. Exactly. Lewis. No characters. Oh, I don't. No I'm thinking... I don't think he was. He said no. I was talking human. about C.S. Lewis because he's as the author. Okay, yeah. C.S. Lewis as the author. You're saying nothing yeah. is allegorical. So I kept almost wanting to have a conversation with him. Like I wanted to have a podcast where we could be like, yeah. okay, decode this for us. What have you to say? We have questions. <laughs> we well, he said human characters. There's only right. two. Right. Yeah. I mean, the rest of them could. You're right. Be. No, sure, absolutely. I mean, Ransom might not but be Tolkien. I mean, there's just so many. So many philologists in the world who walk like Tolkien, talk like Tolkien, like the things that Tolkien likes. But but this is not Tolkien. It's definitely not. But that wouldn't make it allegorical. That <laughs> no. just makes him the the, the inspiration, where, you know, the type of the character. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but so yeah. why does Lewis do this? Why does he say that these characters are not allegorical? Because this goes back to what he says in Narnia about Aslan is not allegorical for Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he explains it later in one of his letters. He's saying, I'm not saying that this would be, this is Jesus in another world. It's just the creation story of Narnia. Right. But it's also because he loathes allegory. He is Mm -hmm. not writing The Pilgrim's Progress, which is specifically person or character by character, item by item, scene by scene, allegorical. He and Tolkien loathed that form, other than when it's done. He, I think he would argue that Pilgrim's Progress was a perfect example of allegory, but that, or as near to perfect as man can get. But that as a rule, when people try to write allegory, they fail miserably and the reader suffers for it. This is rather truths that inform and are given a fictional life to live that reflect a truth that we know and love. And then he did write Pilgrim's Regress. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Which is a slog to get through. (laughs) He's a man of contradictions, as we can see by the preface. (laughs) Well, you could read it whenever you want to, but I think it's really important to know something about Weston, if not Ransom. And what Weston did to Ransom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why is he there? Why did he get chosen to, why did Weston get chosen to be the vehicle in this case? Why would Ransom have willingly gotten into the pod if he had not already been once before 
to Malacandra and in communion with the Aleldil. Although that is explained. Right, but Lewis's character is terrified by the Aleldil. I don't think mm-hmm. we're supposed to just be like, oh, look, this character so happily just trusts these characters. No, he has lived experience that that we got to go through with him. So I think Lewis is wrong in his preface. It's at least a bad idea. So <laughs> yeah. we don't want to tell anybody to try that. Don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> well, and I fear that what has happened is because of that preface, it has happened that in universities, his books are being separated from each other and being read independent of each other. And I think that when we get to that hideous strength, especially to, to, to read that book in a vacuum, I don't think I think it loses its impact and just becomes no. weird. I haven't looked, but I hope he didn't write that at the beginning of that one. Yeah, I haven't looked either. <laughs> <laughs> so but I'm glad you mentioned that, Tanya, because that is really interesting. Well, it's thought provoking. And I think I think he probably had a purpose in saying that. But I think he's had a purpose in saying a lot of the things that he said. And then they were taken out of yes. context. And then we reframe, you know, there's a new framework built around what he said, such as how to read right. Narnia. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden now we're reading it in a way and publishing it in a way that <laughs> are we? <laughs> I think most of us agree is not the best way to enter Actually, the Actually, Diane does not agree so, with us. <laughs> interesting but but you're right it conversation for another day haven't we gone over this before (laughs) that's new information to me christy i i don't know what you're talking about the conversation Mm. about whatever that was so christy how did you enter into narnia oh i'm sure i read the lion the witch and the wardrobe okay i didn't know any better well we'd say tanya and i would say that was the right way (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think the, that's the way to enter it. Well, I mm-hmm. think that was the only one I knew about. <laughs> and but you didn't know being, it was a I, I am a chronological kind mm-hmm. of person. <laughs> and so I would have been had I been offered the choice, I'm pretty sure I would have picked the chronological bit. And you know, I think I would have too. Like I'm I always am saying whenever I have to make a decision about which child to do what first. So I was like birth order. Birth order. <laughs> always about chronology. <laughs> the kids are always like, "Mom, can we watch yeah. this episode of Star Trek?" No, we watch in order. We watch in order. I am an order girl. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I do think it's interesting that Paralandra will challenge your ideas on chronology anyway. The entire last chapter is going to challenge your ideas of what is a beginning and what is an end. <laughs> And what starts where and what's older and what's That's newer. Right. And and so I think... Just, I get um, chills just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, was it was it's so, so thought-provoking. And maybe that's yes. why I'm going to hold to starting with entering it through the wardrobe. Because the chronology to me and what's the beginning is... So as a Doctor Who fan, <laughs> I'm going to say Paralandra is like tiny-wimey. <laughs> Amen to that. Which is why you, you start with nine or ten. You don't start with one, right? <laughs> No, right. Nobody watches Doctor Who in order. You got to start with David Tennant, or else you're not going to stay on that so train. I tried, and I—that's why I've never watched Doctor Who. I watched like four episodes at the f- season one. And I was Weird. like, "This is yes. horrible. Who watches this crap?" And apparently, fifty years worth of people this is watch fact, that. Fact, yes. <laughs> All right. I think 
suffice to say, we're getting we're getting there, right? This is a good opportunity, friends. <laughs> if you have, uh, if you would like to save this until you've either read or are caught up or whatever it is that you want to do, this is where now we're not we're going to take all the boundaries off. It's going to be a spoiler territory. Let's let the meaningful part of this book club begin and go for it. Okay, I have a thought. Shocking. Shocking. Pick me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a mildly unformed thought um, because you said you didn't mm-hmm. like it. And I think, Diane, you must be saying you really love this book. So I'm just fascinated by that. So this is my first read of it. And it was wildly different than the first book. And there was a letter I found somewhere online that C.S. Lewis wrote to someone and he said, you will be both grieved and amused to learn that out of about 60 reviews, only two showed any knowledge that my idea of the fall of the bent one was anything but a private invention what? of my own. <laughs> so, so, but of course, he's clearly talking theology, right? right? He's quoting the right. Bible. We're talking right. about characters um, from the mm-hmm. Bible. There's so much mm-hmm. truth weaving through the story. And it, I just kept thinking... Um, and he's talking like it's not allegory. And of course, I'm not exactly sure when he says he hates – I know that he hates allegory. So I'm just trying to think what is he leading his reader to? What is his object mm-hmm. in in writing this series other than a bet? A couple of questions I had is what would the people of 1942 – what would the books have been that they had read that they would have been making connections to that would have made this story maybe easier to read than it is mm-hmm. for me today? that they would have been connecting to. So I was kind of curious about that. And also the, what was happening in 1942 in some ways mirrors the maybe the feelings that I have of what's happening right. in today's world. Right. And so some of it felt really relevant. Felt poignant. Um, because, mm-hmm. yeah, poignant. Yeah, really poignant and really just kind of struck an, a chord. But also thinking that it's at some point he talks about, I think when he sees the two Oyarsas mm-hmm. and they're like a mirror or like an image, but he can't even say that they're like a mirror or an image. He knows that they are not the thing. They are not Maladil himself, right? Yeah. They're not mm-hmm. himself, but yet they are representative of him. And so I'm thinking this book is representative of truth. Like he's trying to bring people to some sort of truth. And I think in that letter, he goes on to say, <laughs> I believe this great ignorance might be a help to the evangelization of England. Any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under cover of romance without their knowing it. C.S. Lewis puts it getting past watchful dragons, getting in past preconceived notions. So you're you're learning about God or Jesus or or something um, religious or spiritual by reading fairy tales. Right. And so your guard is down and stuff gets in. (laughs) Right. And I think it's significant that in more than one place throughout this book, Ransom is contemplating, oh, that's how myth is actually true. Yes. Which is yes. a theme of Lewis and MacDonald. Mm-hmm. And um, Chesterton. That all myths are true. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you notice, he started off the story with Lewis talking about his fear of even going to see Ransom. And that's kind of a a Tolkien and Lewis theme of, I don't want to go outside of my, I don't want to go on an adventure. I don't want to learn anything Mm -hmm. new. 
I'm, I'm comfortable where right. I'm at. And so he addresses that right at the beginning. Like and a I hobbit. thought, mm-hmm. what? Right. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you read that, the, that first thing, he's so hobbity. Yes. And I thought, what was it about Tolkien and Lewis that made them both such homebodies or want to be such homebodies? And I thought, probably experiencing World War One. I. I don't know. I'm a homebody. You know, and I didn't when you, war. <laughs> I don't mean to they, they kind of have it in extreme. Right. Right. But they have it in it. They've written whole books on people that want to stay home. <laughs> well, you know? And so I think a lot of Lewis's comes from not having had a good home. Yeah. And, and he felt well, that neither loss. Did Tolkien. Well, I don't know that much about his childhood, but, um, you know, Lewis talks about how broken his home was. And Tolkien's was very unsettled as well, because his father died when he was very young, and they moved from Africa to England, and then his mother died, and then he was taken in. And so there was a lot of instability in Tolkien's life as well, and his wife's life. And so, because she was an orphan, like he was. And so, yes, I think that there is a longing for home that we see in all of Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton and MacDonald's writings. I think you see that in Gene Stratton Porter's as well. And that longing for home can only be satisfied, of course, by the final home. And I think that that's part of what does make this book interesting is that we tease that a little bit. Like, what is the ultimate destination? Well, and he says, a man doesn't return from any trip unchanged. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think they fear being different. Mm -hmm from what they are now. Mm -hmm. I think it's also just human nature, though, that we're always fighting is that change is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's easier to stay static and take the path of least resistance. And so you're overcoming human Mm -hmm. nature. But what was fascinating in that first scene is that it wasn't his own fear that was playing upon himself, but there were actual forces being played upon him. And Ransom said to him, they were working upon your mind and upon your heart and creating fear in you as well. So to also recognize that when you're walking towards something that's going to take you towards a greater good, you may encounter mm-hmm. opposition, actual right. opposition to that outside of your own fallen human nature that's already yes. hard to handle. And Diane and I talk about this periodically for other reasons, but one of the things that I think Lewis is a master at is revealing the realness, the authenticity of spiritual warfare, that spiritual warfare is a very real thing. I think in the screw tape letters, we get that. And it's, you know, his magnus opus on spiritual warfare is the screw tape letters, but we get it really, really powerfully in the great divorce as well. And definitely in these texts too, that all the things like you're saying, all the things that Lewis was fearing or the character of Lewis was feeling as he's going to, going to get to Ransom's house. These are real things. These are tangible forces working on him. They're just working in another realm, the spiritual realm. And that's what makes Paralandra itself so fascinating. The veil between the spiritual and the physical is so much thinner. It's so much easier to see. Like you can see the Aleldil and the Yoyarsas better there than you can see them here. You know, they take on more luminosity and and um, the mind is better able to conceive what it's seen in Paralandra than it can here, which is interesting and will be very interesting in the third book. The other thing that in that first, there was so much packed into that first chapter where the, this, 
the story almost hadn't started yet. You know, it's like a story within a story. Um, And I kept thinking, he's asking, can you know truth? And what is, where is that line between being um, the first person to know something and the paranoid uh, conspiracy theorist, you know, and when, when he was asking, (laughs) right, is ransom a dupe? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why does he believe that? And I thought that would, that was, this would be so, such a a mind exercise for people these days where they feel like we're post truth in a post, Post you know, truth era where Mm -hmm. people don't, don't know what is true and what is not. And so how do you know what to believe? Are you being duped Mm -hmm. or are you just the first to know something? Well, I like how you're saying that that we live in a post-truth era. And I think the scene that just turns my stomach every time is the, I call them the frogs, but like the frog-like animals on the beach, that the beach is just littered with these animals that have been tortured by Weston because there's no truth. They have no pain. They have whatever value Weston ascribes to them. And he is doing what he wants to do to suit his own purposes. And Ransom is terror. I mean, he's just scandalized by this, appropriately scandalized by this, because this is such a violation of life. And you see, to me, it's very crystal clear at that moment that we're not dealing with Weston anymore. We are dealing with something completely perverse. And I cry every time. Yes. How do you not? Yes. I, I don't know. Because I don't know how many times I've read this, but I still feel so sorry for those frogs. <laughs> they didn't do anything. <laughs> I think what makes it even worse is they're not just dumb beasts, but they're living in an Eden existence where there is yet no fear, no danger, no, no self-protection. Completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say we didn't, for anybody not familiar with the book, Paralandra is kind of like earth before the fall. Right. Right. And there's just the two, the king and the queen who are in parallel to like our Adam and Eve. So that side of the setup of the world that Ransom finds himself in. And yeah, the the creatures are all helpful and And innocent. And they come when they're called like dolphin, like creatures, (laughs) the fish. So I started off thinking about the comparison of when he um, ransom landed on, went to Mars and when he went to Venus. And I thought he went to Mars unwilling. Mm -hmm. He went to Venus willingly. Mm -hmm. Um, He got to Mars accompanied. He went to Venus unaccompanied. You know, he was by himself. Um, Mars, he was aware of the trip. Venus, he wasn't aware. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mars, he was... Um, called, he said he was called to be there and um, Venus, he was sent. Mm. So one, you know, there were these differences on that started off the whole trip of how he got there and what he was doing there. And then that totally affects what he, how he perceives things when he gets there and how he learns about his environments. Um. And I think that that's another thing. If you don't, if you haven't read the first book, you don't have that contrast. And so it's. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm with you guys. I disagree that you should you could read this without having read the well, first to, one. To build on that, Laura, you're so right because when he gets to Malacandra, he comes from a position of fear, right? He he's been kidnapped and he's fearful, and everything he sees is an enemy or a potential enemy, a potential threat, and so his experience is deeply colored by his fear, and he is limited by that. Fear is paralyzing to him. Versus on Venus, he comes with childlike trust. And he couldn't have come another way without spoiling Venus, without spoiling Paralandra. If he had come with fear and anxiety, he would have ruined this planet. And he would have ruined and corrupted her. He had to become childlike and return to innocence in order to safeguard her innocence. He also, when he first gets to Mars, runs from all the wrong things. Yes. And so the lack of fear when he gets here is he always goes toward every new thing and new challenge, which he had to do. He There was a point where he realized he could die, but at first he just knew he was there for a purpose. <laughs> and it did make a difference in the way he handled everything, every situation that he met. Well, and isn't that interesting also with the rules? She is not to spend a night on solid ground. And we learn by the end of the book, the reason for that is she has, first of all, the capacity to essentially walk on water. She is on this water or on the waves. She is riding these waves because, as she says, why would I struggle against that which Maleldil sends to me? Versus when she gets on the solid ground, she realizes at the end of the book that when she's on the solid ground, she chooses her footings. She chooses her directions. And she couldn't do that when she was young because she first had to learn to trust the waves that were given to her, that were going to carry her where, where God wanted her to go. He was going to lead her. When she first knew how to be led, then she could go to the land and lead. Well, this is exactly what we see the contrast between Ransom's experience on Mars versus Ransom's experience on Venus. In Mars, he's choosing his fittings and he is doing it backwards. He has to regress and learn how to be led. And when he's willing to submit to, be, to the leadership of, of Maleldale, then he can be a worthy character in Paralandra. But I thought those lines about the waves, I'm going to find it. This is chapter chapter five. In my copy, it's page 58. He says, you could never understand, lady, but in our world, not all events are pleasing or welcome. There may be such a thing that you would cut off both your arms and your legs to prevent it happening, and yet it happens with us. But how can one wish any of those waves not to reach us, which Maleldil is rolling towards us? I thought, oh, right. How could we not wish for the waves that the Lord is rolling towards us? It was such a, I don't know, that, that vision, that, that line has stayed with me again and again and again as this is what it means to trust him and to let his will be done. Not my will, Lord, but thine be done. But it also has something to do with not having experienced evil. You know, 
she doesn't have a concept that something could come at her that could pain or hurt but her. If it was, and so, of course. If it was good for her to have that concept, she would have had it. And so the fact that she right. doesn't. But her easy acceptance. <laughs> right. right. But I feel like Lewis has written her in there to speak to us that we make it too hard for ourselves. We take on too much authority in our own lives. We spend too much time trying to manage the waves instead of letting the waves wash over us because we serve a good and loving and perfect God who loves us more than we can conceive. He will not send that to us that he has not prepared us for and does not desire for us. And we tend to forget that. We tend to think we need to protect ourselves. We need to do all these things. And I feel like Lewis here is reminding us, no, not, no, no, no. Because I think when you live through war, you recognize you don't get to decide where the bullets land. You don't get to decide where the bombs go off. You don't get to decide what things happen when, when people are miraculously protected and when they are tragically killed. You don't get to make those decisions. Those are made outside of this world. And so what we need to do is trust that God who knows all of this, who's outside of all of this time, that he has decided for us that which is our, for our good and his glory, even if it's death. I felt like he, he does get to the point, and this is where you feel like your brain explodes, when he talks about um, your, your free will and the sovereignty of these situations. I mean, you're in a situation of war. You don't run to the front lines and stand there and go, whatever God wills. You know, there are some wisdom things you take along sure. with you. And and so, you know, I think the overwhelming the message I got is when, when there is purpose in your suffering, your endurance increases, you know you're here for a reason. There is a... um something you have to do and that the purpose of your life is the overarching sovereignty of God, that there may be um, events that happen that you feel like because Satan is the prince of this world, that there are things, there are going to be bad things that happen and you have to um, step forward in, in faith in spite of those, not that's not a reason to shake your fist at God, but it also isn't necessarily, I guess this is where you're going to get into a discussion of his permissive will versus his, um, you know, he allows something to happen and then can make good of it. Mm -hmm. Not that he sends bad things. And so, I, I well, mean, and we do see that Lewis took on some really hard, yeah. you know, <laughs> questions here, and then tried to wrestle with them metaphorically. It wasn't it wasn't enough that he's going to have you try to understand, you know, man's free will and God's sovereignty. He's like, okay, but I'm also going to just talk about it metaphorically, <laughs> so you figure it out. Well, I think he does. I think speaking to what you're saying, Laura, he does deal with that because ransom. So ransom is looking at her as being the ideal, the unfallen Eve. This is ideally what we should be. But Ransom does have wisdom. Ransom has knowledge of evil, and he has knowledge of good, and he has submitted to the waves and submitted to God, but he still has 
knowledge of the evil that is possible. So that is why he can see what Weston is when she cannot. And that is why ultimately he has to battle with Weston in a way that he does not want to have to do. And he has to fight literally to the death, the evil that's there. Because he does have, like you say, that wisdom. He's not running in front of a tanker. God wills, God's will be done. But more like when we saw, I, I keep thinking about medical core heroes. I've been getting landmark books recently. And so I've been kind of obsessed with landmark books. I'm thinking about our medical core heroes discussion. But how many time those, times those medics ran out into the line of fire because that was what was necessary to do the greatest good, which was to save the wounded, knowing that the Japanese were shooting for them on purpose. So I think that that's what we see play out with Ransom and Weston. I think, yes, Ransom has more wisdom and he definitely understands Weston, but she also has some wisdom that he doesn't have that he's trying to, like he has to kind of remember Remember. or like almost re-remember in a way because especially when this comes up a few times, but he talks about how she kind of goes, oh, I I kind of see now what you're saying. Um, One can conceive of a heart which did not, which clung to the good it had first thought of and turned the good which was given it into no good. She's comparing the good that was expected to turn from the good expected to the given good. With us, like our our way of living in the world, we kind of expect things that are good and we tend to cling to those things. And she's saying, oh, that's different than the way I live. I'm always seeing the next thing that's coming to me, like you're saying, like mm-hmm. these waves, as this is the next given good, because everything to her has yes. been good. And he has to kind of like remember like, oh, if I if I had lived that way, if I could live that way at some point, I wouldn't be clinging to things right. anymore. Uh, that whole concept was just really fascinating to me that we miss out on the good, the good that's given to us because we don't necessarily always see it as good or we don't expect it to mm-hmm. be good. So we're clinging to these things in the past or, you know, that we think we understand as good and maybe missing out on. Focusing on our expectations instead of focusing on what is really being offered to us. Mm-hmm. I thought the most touching comment about what we were talking about with, yes, God can make all things good. And he mm-hmm. does. And whatever comes to us, you know, he sent it. But in chapter 12, where he's fi- he's finally said, this can't go on. And then the lady is put to sleep so that he and Weston can go battle it out. Right. He looks at her and says, you know, I'll never, um, I shall never again look on a female body in quite the same way as I look on this. Other things, other blessings, other glories, but never that. Never in all worlds that God can make good use of all that happens, but the loss is real. And and that was just that, mm-hmm. but the loss is real stopped me to contemplate because I think we like to, to glibly say, oh, well, you know, uh, God can make every good of everything and you shouldn't be upset because there's probably some unknown purpose, whatever. The loss is real when I look back over things that have happened in my life. We'll never know what could have been, and maybe it would have been worse some other way. But the things that we lost, they really are lost. And I think it's, we should admit that. You know, sometimes as Christians, we're afraid to say that. Mm. Something is lost, and I, and I mourn it. Right. It's okay it's to okay. do that. Well, like, 
chapter 11, the very beginning of chapter 11, he says, so this is the end of the second paragraph, and he says, um, Why did heaven work none? Not for the first time, he found himself questioning divine justice. He could not understand why Maleldil should remain absent when the enemy was there in person. But while he was thinking this, as suddenly and sharply as if the solid darkness about him had spoken with articulate voice, he knew that Maleldil was not absent. Okay, so he says more, and then he goes on to say, Inner silence is for our race a difficult achievement. There is a chattering part of the mind which continues until it is corrected to chatter on even in the holiest of places. Thus, while one part of ransom remained, as it were, prostrated in a hush of fear and love that resembled a kind of death, something else inside of him, wholly unaffected by reverence, continued to pour queries and objections into his brain. He then goes on to say that he tried to persuade himself that he, Ransom, could not possibly be Melindell's representative, as the unman was the representative of hell. And I think it, I think that these these couple of paragraphs, and I just took a couple of quotes from each of them, but speak to all of what you're saying that this evil is real, and he does not want to face this evil, and he is furious that God is not facing evil because he should be. That's his job. God should be handling the evil. And that's what his head is doing. His head is telling him that God is negligent here. And his head is telling him, you you can't be the representative. You can't be. But in that press, in that hush of darkness and love that he references, he feels both the presence of the evil and the presence of love. Love can only be God. There cannot be any love associated with evil. So we, we know that those feelings of love he is feeling, those come from God. He is feeling that tension. He has to acknowledge the evil for what it is. We have to acknowledge the evil that has happened to us, the evil we have done, the evil that has been done to us. The evil is real. But never is God not present. He is always there in the form of love. And we very often are his called representative into that evil. Now, I'm not saying that a child has to stand up to an abuser. I'm saying that 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 evil that happens to us, maybe we can't fight back when it's happening. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a way that that's going to become an integral part of our story, that we will fight back against the evil that authored that. So why did you think Meldil didn't speak audibly to Ransom for most, he said, at my count, three things to him. And you would see conversations going on and you would know that the the queen was hearing Meldil right. in her head, right. but Ransom wasn't until he told him my name was Ransom. Mm-hmm. And I thought, whoa, why, why has he not heard God speaking in his head before now. See, I think that's because truth is so much stronger and bigger than words. Words are not necessary. And I think that when Ransom admits in in the beginning of that chapter that our minds just chatter on. Words, 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 words. Now, feelings are unreliable witnesses, but so are words. The presence of God, however, is undeniable. Well, and I think Ransom was being held accountable for the fact that he has the whole story and she doesn't yet. She's still younger. He's supposed to be older because he already (laughs) has known this story before. Mm -hmm. 
And so he's kind of left there wrestling with his own fears and weaknesses because he should already know that Malal Dill is there with him. Mm -hmm. I was, maybe I read this wrong, but the way I read it was this whole section. uh, Lewis is describing Malal Dill as darkness, capital D darkness. And I thought that was so confusing at first. Like why is Ransom perceiving this representative, you know, God as darkness. That's not how we typically think of God. We think of God as light. So I don't know the answer to that. I thought like, is it because he's resisting his will? Is it kind of like this Aslan thing where there's like this fierceness as well as this love? Mm. I don't know. I just thought that was Mm. really interesting that he ransom. I'm not saying he was darkness, but ransom experiences Malel Dill as darkness. Well, is it safe to say that this is ransom's garden in Gethsemane moment? Mm. And that he, I mean, what do we remember is that Christ, Christ felt abandoned in the garden, which of course he was not abandoned, but he. Yeah. And it was an inner battle for ransom as well, trying to come to terms of like, was he going to fight or not? If you could let this cut Mm -hmm. pass. I love though that he's sitting there going, this isn't fair. (laughs) Where's my little deal's representative? (laughs) Oh, Oops. Because like we said, it, it's not going to happen again. Jesus already ransomed everybody. Right. So we're not doing that again. This is a completely different story. And this time it's you as an, an image of me in the way that in the end he sees that the king is created in the image of God the way right. Adam probably looked before the fall. Right. We as Christians are called to be Christ bearers. All have been redeemed. And and what Lewis is saying in this trilogy is that all, all meaning all planets, all creatures made in the image and likeness of God, all what we call in Star Trek humanoids have been redeemed (laughs) once and for all outside of time and inside of time. And the place that had happened is the place where the Oyarsa was evil. Here. And there is still an epic battle here that's raging on. I think I always assumed that the evil would be stopped, but you're not guaranteed that Ransom will not die mm-hmm. any more than he was. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the part of what he had to go through was, I might die, but mm-hmm. I still have to do it. Well, and how different would it be to be a reader of the original not knowing that it's a trilogy. Like you don't know, you really don't know if Ransom's going to make it to the end because you don't know there's another book. Those of us who know there's another book, we kind of assume <laughs> that Ransom's all good. Or if not Ransom, then maybe Lewis ca- picks up the torch and carries it on. We, you know, we, But we're, we're not as insecure about what happens to Ransom. Right, yeah. Well, we know he gets back because it's at the very beginning of the book. Oh, you're right. Right. You're right, Sarah. You're right. Because he comes home and tells Lewis. That's right. I always forget about that part. Well, yeah, I I totally lost that, I'm sure, by, by the time I was, before I was halfway through the book, mm-hmm. the first time is... Whoa, what could happen? What could happen? I, don't, I didn't remember that. We already know he comes back. Because <laughs> I remember the bleeding heel from the beginning mm-hmm. of the book, and then it comes back. It's around. a darn bleeding heel. It's such a, I don't know, it just immediately makes you think of the, the garden and the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. yeah, heel crushing mm-hmm. the serpent. 100%. 
have to say the Oyarsa. Yeah, the Oyarsa is one of the arguments for it not being a, a allegory was because I I kept thinking, oh, an Oyarsa is an angel. Mm. But then at the end of this, you find that the king Tor is called Tor Oyarsa. So it's just the leader of the world, not necessarily an end, always an angelic being, I don't think, because I don't think he's trying to say that the king is a is an angelic being. That would be like an what he, you know an analogy that he wasn't making there. I don't think. No, because the king I mean, did you guys the think- king says that he's going to grow and become more and more that way as he gets older. He says something about taking ten thousand years to get to where he's has the um, total the abilities of the actual Oyarsa. I, I don't remember how he put it, but he's he's expecting to not become something else, but be, but develop into more and more of a king until the Oyarsa is isn't really needed anymore. Right. But it's interesting. It's intriguing because what then is he saying about the Chondria's Oyarsa? Because the Oyarsa of Malakandra, too, right, he's probably more like the king because we understand that he is both, he governs the LL deal and he is submissive to the LL deal, depending upon the capacity. And in Paralandra, it's the same. The king is the Oyarsa and but he's human, not human, but he he's the he's a man-like creature. But we keep hearing from, especially we heard this in Out of the Silent Planet, that the Oyarsa of Thukandria, Earth, that he was the first bent one. Well, that would be Lucifer. And Lucifer's not a man. He's an archangel. So I don't know what correlation he's doing there. But what one thing we also know, though, is that in all of these other planets, the evil is not from those planets. The evil is actually from Thukandria. And so the Oyarsas there don't have to be angelic in order to rule well. Here we have an angelic Oyarsa who is the Antichrist, maybe? Or is Lucifer? Not sure. Um, but that's also why we had a divine savior. We needed the real deal savior because we have the real deal evil. Everybody else just has sort of like pale comparisons to what is happening here. Well, I do think that the Oyarsa is a title. Mm-hmm. Right. But it, so then... It's still confusing, though. Is Lewis saying that the Oyarsa of Earth is Lucifer, or is he saying something else? Oh, I, yes, I think so. Because the, the ultimate evil, the, the instigator of evil, would be the same as the Son of God. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. mean equal. I mean that those are the two things that are real no matter where you are and what you're talking about. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that this is the part that's not allegory. It's just biblically true. That the Savior of all mankind is Jesus Christ. Of all mankind. 
and the Satan and, and the, the, the tempter, the liar, the you know, yeah, is Satan. Is yeah. Satan himself, yes. Mm-hmm. So I want to know who liked it and who didn't, and why do those who didn't like it don't like I'll it? I'll go first because I didn't like it, and I said that earlier, and it's really short as to why I don't like it. For someone who doesn't like this book, you sure have an awful <laughs> lot to say about it. <laughs> Amen. What in heaven's name? Okay, and in all fairness, Tanya said she didn't have anything to say either. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Okay. And I'm the one that's like, oh my golly, I just discovered this book. And I'm just sitting here going, okay. I don't like how I feel (laughs) when I read it. I don't like the darkness that I feel when I read it. I don't like the confusing, those last couple chapters are just, they break my brain because they don't compute properly. And I don't find them, I I don't find it beautiful. I just find it scandalous and confusing. (laughs) So that's why, so I can go, I can just say that the reason why I don't like it is because it, it really hurts my heart to read it. And I don't find a lot of, I find things that could be beautiful in it, but the beauty doesn't overwhelm me, even though I highlight on almost every page. Like, I I agree, Christy. I'm not saying that this is an unworthy book. I'm just saying that this is the book I loathe to pick up. That I get. (laughs) It, right. Mm -hmm. There are some books that are really good. Mm -hmm. I don't feel good when I'm reading them. They're hard. Yeah. There's something working on yes. me inside yes. that, that, that just like, mm, yeah. and, and I want to put it down and I want to put it yeah. down and I can't right. put it down because I know I need to read it, <laughs> but okay. Now I get it because I'm, I'm just like totally confused. You had so many beautiful things oh, to say you. about it. <laughs> And I'm like, and she doesn't like it. <laughs> and it's weird because the third yeah. book is really, really dark. But I love that one. But I think for me, where where the book moves from the category of being, this is very intriguing and full of beauty to, I hate reading this, is when Ransom is called upon to kill Weston. I just don't like how that battle plays out. I don't like what is required of it. I don't like that. I, I am with Ransom. Where are you, Maleldale? Like, what? why is this? Is this really how it has to go down? And yet it doesn't feel as elegant as Christ himself. So I'm like, I don't, I can, rec- I can better reconcile the cross than I can the cave. I do want to say just kind of with what you were saying, it, I feel like it's challenging and there's parts where, and for different parts, for different people who are reading, it may really resonate. And other parts where you think, I have no idea what's being said right here. So I really identified with the queen when um, Weston is speaking to her and Ransom is trying to speak. And eventually she just, like, it's almost too painful where she says, I'm growing t- um, too old yeah. too much. And she has to bring it back in. And then sometimes she just leaves or she's like, I have yeah. to go sleep now. And I felt like that. I, I got to go take a nap. I, it's a little, what's a happening? Little so I think like it's a little much. I love that. I love that we could identify mm-hmm. with her as she's being stretched. Because mm-hmm. we're being stretched too to even like Weston. And, and I felt a lot of sympathy for Eve, mm-hmm. a ton of compassion and sympathy for Eve. 
because Weston's um, arguments are so mm-hmm. compelling. And and Ransom himself is thinking, I don't have the words or the ability to to count or contradict this. Yeah. And I love when he even was worried to contradict it with the truth because he felt the truth would fail. actually right. make yeah. it worse. Yeah. It would fail. And then he still had to show up with the truth. And he felt like showing up with the truth was a weakness. And how many times yeah, have we felt def- like that? Definitely. Where we feel like showing yeah. up with the truth is a because weaker the, argument. Because the evil one is so good at taking the truth and twisting it. Yes. And twisting it. You know, and we see that, do the, we not? We yes. see that. And we all shy away. the truth, I'm just backing into and a so corner just, here and making it worse. <laughs> and I'm yeah. not good enough. I don't, I'm not eloquent enough. And I often have said to my husband, where are all the great minds? <laughs> Where are the Chestertons? Where are the Lewises? Where are the Frederick yeah. Douglasses? Where are the Socrates and the Platos of the 21st century? Are they dead? <laughs> we have none. Is God sending none? Because I'm not it. <laughs> and maybe that's how Ransom is feeling too. Like, are we? Do we? Are we called to speak truth even when we feel we can't do it as eloquently? And then feel free to go take a nap yeah. too. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> God recognizes this is hard. So I resonated with all of those pieces because there were. There's big parts where I just thought, I don't know. And then also the just the world building was just I can't pick like Laura yeah. said in the first episode, I cannot picture this this world went beyond my ability to visualize it. I, I thought I am I not imaginative enough? Do I not understand mythology enough? I, yes and yes. I had a much better time with this one than really? the first Fascinating. one. With the imagery? Yeah. I was so bored with the first wow. one and all the orange and the this and the color and the what. Really? And yeah, I I could I had a hard time getting through that. This one was just not as difficult. I, I don't It was literally topsy turvy, upside down, inside I out, made no sense. All the time. Uh, car sick yes i'm like i'm i'm i i don't feel well <laughs> i need a cold compress you know what? let's be th- let's let's acknowledge that christy loves maritime books so christy loves ships oh. so this would be right in your wheelhouse christy that's uh-huh. fascinating I-, I thought some of it was kind of trying to slog through the imagery so i love hearing mm-hmm. how much you loved it and it resonated mm-hmm. with you i felt like I str- I, I'm with Tanya. I struggled so much visualizing this. And then I got to the point where I thought, maybe this is the whole point. You're not supposed, yeah. I mean, Ransom isn't supposed right. to be trusting his right. senses. Right. And so yeah. maybe you're struggling with him to perceive what this world mm-hmm. is. Like he even says to the Oyarsa, is this how you appear? Or is this how you appear to me? And the Oyarsa said, yeah, it's how we appear to you. You are not capable of seeing what we are. I love the imagery of their hair flying back because they're actually moving, trying to like stay still for him. And that's why they feel like it looks like they're sort of shimmering. And you're kind of imagining like this planet spinning around. And (laughs) they're like desperately trying to like stay in one place for him by like constantly moving. (laughs) That's a great point, too. I want to also make sure we touch on the imagery of evil. Maybe it was just me, but the imagery of evil felt so chilling Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. And there was one, there was one point where the unman, where he recognizes it's no longer Weston. So he's been questioning, where is Weston? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it said, um, this is page 95 in my book. I don't know which chapter. 
It looked at Ransom in silence, and at last began to smile. We have all often spoken, Ransom himself had often spoken, of a devilish smile. Now he realized that he had never taken the word seriously. The smile was not bitter, nor raging, nor in any ordinary sense sinister. It was not even mocking. It seemed to summon Ransom with horrible naivete of welcome into the world of its own pleasures, as if all men were at one in those pleasures, as if they were the most natural thing in the world and no dispute could ever have occurred about them. It was not furtive nor ashamed. It had nothing of the conspirator in it. It did not defy goodness. It ignored it to the point of Mm -hmm. annihilation. Ransom perceived that he had never seen anything but half-hearted and uneasy attempts at evil. This creature was whole-hearted. The extremity of its evil had passed beyond all struggle into some state which bore a horrible similarity to innocence. It was beyond vice as the lady was beyond virtue. And I think it's fascinating that what, why, why have we never seen evil like this? Because every man is created in the image and likeness of God himself. So every man bears the image of our Lord. No one man, not even Hitler himself, is so wholly evil, so completely evil as Weston is here because Weston is no longer a man. He is the unman. I thought that that was just such an interesting acknowledgement that any evil we've seen, and we've we've definitely seen a lot of horrific evil, this is beyond that. This is completely without God. I thought it was also interesting that Ransom comes to the point of perfect hatred. Yeah, right. Because there is, you know, David ta- and, and whoever mm-hmm. else wrote the Psalms talks a lot about, I, I hate those who hate you. Right. And even in Lewis's meditations on the Psalms, he kind of tries to gloss over that. But I think that there is a place for that perfect hatred, and we don't see that either because we don't have the capacity to do it without um, ulterior motives. Right. But when he gets to that point, that's really interesting to contemplate because we are supposed to hate evil that much. Mm-hmm. He doesn't hate Weston. No, he has he compassion. He never hates Weston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he mm-hmm. continues but to have he compassion. he hates the him. evil enough to kill, to kill the body. At that point where Weston is so is seeing him in such a horrific, I mean, Ransom is seeing Weston in such a horrific state. Weston is not trying to be winsome. He's not trying to tempt. Right. This is just pure evil. And so I think that is what people experience when they experience the reality of evil, not what they perceive as being evil. The enticement what we had a a pastor at our church that always said, uh, you never get out of sin, what you go into sin to get. Mm. And I think that's what it is, is that here you're seeing what you get. Mm -hmm. You're not seeing what you've been enticed to Mm -hmm. get. And so when they're seeing that, that evilness, I, I think the most hair raising part for me was when Weston says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that voice, oh my goodness, I could just feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I read that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mm oh. Because he's mocking and you would almost expect lightning to strike. Yes. How dare you? Mm -hmm. And yet Weston himself isn't mocking. The evil one is mocking. But Weston himself is, is just using my God as an expletive. 
And so he he is not, it's or he's calling out to God, why have you forsaken me? It is, it's a fascinating, fascinating and terrifying scene, I think. I did like this book. It was my second read. It definitely was challenging. And I did feel uncomfortable reading a lot of it, especially, you know, like we've talked about the, there's a lot of evil mm-hmm. in your face. So I think that was challenging, but I did. I did really like the book. It's almost like Lewis is putting flesh on all of his theological yes, ideas. I love that. <laughs> it is kind of dense um, in areas, and I'm sure there's a, a whole lot we didn't cover yeah. or even like that just went right over our heads. There was one thing that stood out to me um, because of other reading I've been doing that probably would go over a lot of people's heads that maybe goes to some of the context from the time, but when Ransom first encounters Weston coming onto the planet and they're having this conversation and there's just this overwhelming arrogance coming from yeah. Weston, even though he's saying like admitting he was wrong on Malacandra, but you just get this overwhelming sense of like, you are still so, so arrogant. And he's trying to convince Ransom that his religion and his new ideas are really ultimately the same thing right (laughs) and he's like nothing now divides you and me except a few outworn theological technicalities with which organized religion has unhappily allowed itself to get Mm -hmm. encrusted and this just reminded me of this whole hegelian idea that i think was starting to become well known or popular maybe like in the academy in lewis's day but it's still like actively sort of this idea in our culture of that there's really like these dichotomies that are not actual dichotomies. Like if we just think of them in a new light, we'll realize they're really just like the same thing. Right. Um, And that's sort of where like this truth gets really muddied and kind of gets really confusing. And, you know, it's like, oh no, this is not like a black and white thing or good and evil thing. It's just think of it at a higher level and it's really just the same thing. This was like this Hegelian idea, which I, I see Lewis, getting at in this conversation and kind of saying no ransom's like no i don't i don't think you know i'm a christian that's not what we mean by that (laughs) (laughs) and we didn't even touch on gender there's so much interesting things parents should probably know like there's a lot of interesting ideas and thoughts about gender in this book which i think lewis is saying gender this male and female or femininity and masculinity are universal in a way that like we don't even normally think about um but it just comes across and like raising a lot of questions and i think it could be read in ways that maybe lewis didn't intend (laughs) so Mm -hmm. throwing that out there there is um, (laughs) that higher level right (laughs) that higher level this is really one one that we could do quite a bit more with i would say we have just barely begun to scratch the surface on this one there's the, the format doesn't allow for us to go deeper, but there's a lot in here. And if you were doing this with students, you really would want to take a few weeks to do this and very thoughtfully. I'd like to put in a plug for the audiobook. Yes, so good. I I have to say that the there's so much conversation mm-hmm. between Weston and Ransom mm-hmm. that comes across really well in the audiobook and and the guy does a great job. He really does. Yeah. So, 
it it really it spurred me to say now I need to pick up the book and read through it so I can mark out these places yeah. that I'm I've got my phone in the holder and I'm I'm doing the voice memos in the middle yeah, of the I recording. I would do the bookmarking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> g- give myself a voice memo. Oh, oh, I just thought about oh. this so that I could go back and and um, look Very it up. Cool. Yeah, I do a lot of bookmarking when I'm listening to Lewis, and where you bookmark, and then I give myself a couple of keywords like this is what I want to go back and think about, and then I go to my book and highlight and make margin notes because. This is one where even to read it once, you have to almost kind of read it a couple of times. You can't really get the whole thing in in one straight reading. You really need to kind of reread certain sections and interact with it a bit. So my first exposure to this was as an audiobook. I'd listened to it while driving from Florida to Texas. The second time I read it, till I got to the last chapter. And then I turned on the audiobook and read, had it read to me because my head was about to yeah, explode. That last chapter. And I think, <laughs> I think it will take me about 10 more reads before I'll know if I like it or not. <laughs> but you're not writing it off. That's what matters. <laughs> no, no. There's so much to digest. Yeah. So much. I think I might need to like, read a chapter a week, <laughs> you know, read one chapter, sit for it with a week, you know, for a week, sit with it. And then, okay, maybe I'm ready for the next chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just too much to think about. <laughs> All right, Diane, why do you love this one? <laughs> well, I think we talked a- about a lot of the things and I loved what Sarah said about Lewis putting flesh on a lot of concepts. Mm-hmm. But I specifically remember, I didn't think I was going to feel like that about it. Um, <laughs> the first time I read this and thinking, I hope that this is something like what happened with Eve and that she didn't just fall on that first conversation that we know about. Right. And I think that it just really got to me that um, surely... Surely it took a little bit more than we see for the mother of all of all humans yeah. to ruin everything for us. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that sounds, um, but that's, that's what set me on the path to being open to loving it. I think, even though mm-hmm. some of it is very difficult. Mm-hmm. I did. I got to this last second, to the last chapter again, or the last one where they're always, they're just talking and saying, and then blessed be he. And I'm going, once again, I don't think I need to read every word of this. I have it one time or another, but yeah. I don't need that at this moment. And there's the other part where he's coming out of the cave. Mm-hmm. Just just let him out. Yeah, I don't understand <laughs> that. And I'm. it must be rooted in some mythological tale that we're unfamiliar with. There, there's got to be a reason why he did that. But I just the, I could not abide the cave. Well, they do all go to the underworld. Yes, right. Often right. go to the underworld. Right. Maybe that's a little bit like Frodo falling off the path and being struck with blindness and has to find his way back. Well, Sam helps him find mm. his way back. But I liked it better in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of loved the cave incident because I felt like he had was overcoming all. He was in the depths of the darkest place where there was no light. 
and just the faith to continue on. And also because there was darkness, mm-hmm. he couldn't see exactly mm-hmm. the exact level of danger mm-hmm. that he was in. Um, and just that it was perilous and, and that he was moving forward upwards towards light and something mm-hmm. better. Even though the, the cave part when he's on his way out gets a little tedious, I think it could not have gone on so long. But one of the things I love about the book is Ransom, his the way he just keeps going because you're Mm -hmm. thinking no one could survive that. No one could keep going like that. No one would be able to get through this. And then if you think about other stories, you know, and people, you know, and incidents, people do just do what they have to do. And that is a parallel to Christ. How could he have survived what he did? He had to. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we just do what we have to do. When you think of him carrying the cross on the Via de la Rosa and you think, so every year on Good Friday, we as Catholics venerate the cross, meaning we we bring the cross and we contemplate this torture that it is. And we have a life-size cross in our parish. I don't know how somebody could carry that let alone carry it after having been scourged and tortured and starved. And he did not carry it through supernatural strength. He carried the physical cross. He carried through human strength. The sin that was clinging to the cross, that he carried spiritually. But that, I mean, I I cannot even, I can contemplate it, meaning that I can contemplate the fact that I can't contemplate it. So I think that the fact that Ransom was in darkness here matters. If Ransom could see what he had to do, he probably would not have sustained his will. Instead, he just kept climbing until he was free. I think he even said that, mm-hmm. didn't he? A lot of, as he was going through it, he would mention, well, can't look right. down. <laughs> can't see. You know, can't see how far right. up I am. And and it seemed kind of practical to me because toward the end of it, he's like, and I learned enough that I started curling my toes before I took the next step because I was protecting myself. Mm. He was learning all of this as he's climbing up through it. I thought it was like life sometimes. Mm. We just don't know what we're Mm -hmm. doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels like that anyway. But then again, I haven't read this book 10 times. (laughs) So I I have, I have a feeling that by the time I got to that part, I'd be reading all my favorite parts and skimming the rest and and just leaving out. Yeah. yeah, It's like, okay, I know what happens here. Let's get to the good stuff. I think you just called out why I really liked it though, Christy, is that one of the things that ran some questions is why Mm -hmm. me? Why am I the one called to do this? And then he has to say, he says to himself, why Mm -hmm. not me? If we knew what we were being called to do, we might run away or faint at the very thought of it. And how many times have you felt called to do something and you're on the path? And when you look back, you think, had I known that this was going to be the growth opportunities or the learning experiences I was going Mm -hmm. to have, I would have shrunk from the task. Well, and all six of us here are mothers. And what do they say? Every woman forgets what labor is until just before. (gasps) Yeah, because you would never want to have another if you remembered the agony that you're about to endure, right? 
(laughs) Even those of us with C-sections, because that's its own agony. (laughs) Well, girls, this is a really long one and there's very little to edit out. (laughs) So we should probably stop. (laughs) Thank you, ladies, for spending your afternoon with us. And thank you, Sarah, for allowing us to read a book that I love. It was so gracious of me, wasn't it? It it really was, yes. Christy, thank you for coming. Laura and Tanya and Sarah, it was very good to have you here and to talk about this book. Ladies, thank you so very much for continually showing up for this wonderful book club rhythm and habit that we have. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to discuss real books in this way. It's really a gift. And so, friends, uh, we are so thrilled that you're here and listening. We would love to be able to converse with you as well. We'd love to talk to you about, did you like it? Did you not like it? What did you think of it? So if you want to join us, we'd love to chat with you over in the Plumfield Reads part of the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. And so the link for that is in the show notes. And friends, we always talk about a lot of stuff. There's always references. My good little girl takes show notes the whole time while she helps to produce the show. And so there will be show notes available with links to all the fun things. So join us next month when we do the final book in this Ransom trilogy, That Hideous Strength. Mamas, I want to give you a very, very crystal clear warning here, as we will do multiple times. The third book is not for children. If you're listening to audio, you're going to want to use headphones or do it somewhere else. Um, Not only is it scary, it has legitimate conversations about marital matters. And you can check out our review to understand a little bit more about what I'm saying. But please use caution with that one. Um, There's nothing scandalous, but it is not something that you want to be putting in the hands of your children without a whole lot of um, decision making on your own part. We just want you to be informed. So friends, we really look forward to having you join us next month for That Hideous Strength. And in July, we will be doing something a little different. Instead of doing one hefty, beautiful book, we're going to be doing a couple of Christmas in July themed books. So thanks so much, friends, for being here. Until next time. 